All right. I like this microphone. A lot of Dharma centers now, they make you put things over your ear. And uh, as a musician, I like to be able to play the microphone because, you know, if my voice goes down, I can get closer. And then if I want to get louder, I can move back. But if you have it over your ear, you can't control the dynamics. I'm just letting you know that. I know that's important to all of you, uh, but uh, maybe not anyway. Um, so um, we'll begin with uh, some meditation. And I suspect that's why most of you came tonight, is to meditate at the end of a probably busy week. I do think that instead of thanking Buddha, I'm just not sure thanking Buddha makes sense. I think maybe either thank Dharma or thank Karma. Thank Dharma, it's Friday. Thank Karma, it's Friday. Well, we'll think about it. That'll give you something to think about while you're meditating. If you don't already have like 80,000 things to think about. So just settling into your posture. Well, that's a treat to sit together on a Friday night. Um, I haven't actually been here uh, for this particular gathering before I've uh, been involved with uh, New York Insight, I'd say since its inception, pretty much. Sandra and I taught a day long in 2003 uh, uh, before I even published One Breath at a Time and uh, and before you had this space. Um, so uh, Sandra and I went through our teacher training at Spirit Rock together with Gina uh, some over 20 years ago. <laughs> Not to, you know, <laughs> get too uh, time-oriented, but, um, but I, uh, I have a lot of connections with New York. I have family here, and I'm from the East Coast originally. I live in, in Northern California in Berkeley. <clears throat> and uh, so I waited until it stopped snowing, but I'll be leaving before it starts again. So just FYI, uh, you know, winter. This would be like the dead of winter for us. This would be like, whoa, it's really winter, man. So as you know, uh, but. Um, I thought maybe uh, to start with seeing if there's any practice questions and then maybe we'll take a little break and then I'll give more of a formal talk. But um, I, I noticed that I talked a lot there during the guided meditation and uh, I usually talk and then am silent as I did, but I guess there was a lot I wanted to convey tonight and it's some, it's, what what I was conveying is is very much kind of where I'm, what I'm trying to kind of bring out in my my teaching in teaching meditation these days, particularly the the question around effort and the the, the quality of effort and uh, and then how that relates to loving kindness. In any case, uh, are there any questions tonight just about meditation? Uh, I presume there are some people who are relatively new to practice and. Um, it actually is a is a service to all those who are too shy to raise their hands to be the person who is is uh, brave enough to raise their hand and ask a question. Uh, yes, wonderful, a brave person. How do you know that you're any? <laughs> Hi, Tanya. You don't have to tell me why. Oh, well, then, okay, then, then. You can if you want, but I already... Well, also, I was just thinking about all the things I was going to come here today and yeah. wasn't. Uh -huh. I was just like, this is actually happening on a good time because I probably have a lot that I should... Not, not, not think about. about. Yeah. So yeah, how'd that because go? It's not that important. Uh-huh, right. You know, you are just, you know, just the perfect sacrificial lamb. So thank you. 
Thank you for offering yourself up in that way. We, I don't know if it's just our culture or if it's human behavior, but I do see that uh, in the meditation world, we run into this problem a lot, which is that we are trained at least, you know, we come to understand that when given a task uh, or when learning a skill, we are striving to achieve something, if not perfection, at least competence. And we then immediately put ourselves on a scale of where we think we are on that, you know, range of whether we're competent or incompetent or good or bad at it. And that kind of thinking has nothing to do with meditation which is one of the things that makes it so tricky. I was going to say difficult, but that I don't think is the right word, really. It's, tr- it's, it's a different way of operating. So that just the way we think about our meditation is... Uh, the way we're being encouraged to think about our meditation is actually the way we're being encouraged to meditate by not striving, by not trying to achieve something. And that doesn't make any sense because I came here to do something. I came here to meditate. Well, how do you meditate? Well, you do these things. The teacher said you're supposed to do these things and I'm not doing them. So obviously I'm not doing it right. So I'm, I'm, Maybe I'm not bad at this, but I'm just not succeeding or I'm, I'm not getting a grade. Uh, the good grade. And so, really, the, the kind of, for me, the heart of this practice, the, of, of becoming comfortable with this practice, is giving that up. And, and rather than learning anything, it's actually what you have to do is unlearn something, is that kind of thinking at least insofar as this practice goes. So that means that in practical terms, as you're sitting and you're trying to follow your breath, say, and then you realize that for the last five minutes you've been you know, cleaning out your refrigerator or you know, packing your suitcase for that trip to the Bahamas, you know, which swimsuit should I bring? I don't know. Should I? I should take two. Cause, well, maybe three because I really like that one. You know, I do that. So, I mean, I don't, not so much because I don't go to the Bahamas, but I do a lot of suitcase packing in my meditation. Um, that when you realize you're doing that, that you just go, oh, that's what's happening right now. And you don't add anything to it. And then you notice how uncomfortable it makes you feel to think about packing your suitcase. Because packing your suitcase in your mind is an expression of anxiety. That's, it's what, you know, it's a typical thing that when we're, the things we're thinking about most of the time are causing agitation in our mind, in our body, right? So it feels uncomfortable. So I'm sitting here. I realize I've been spacing out this whole time, and then I realize, oh, it doesn't feel good to space out. So what's the reaction to that? If your friend comes to you and says, oh, you know, I'm feeling kind of anxious, like I'm spacing out a lot, do you say to them, what the hell is wrong with you? Why don't you get it together? Like you are such a loser spacing out being anxious. Why are you anxious? Stop that. No, it's not what you say to your friend. You say, oh man, I know. It's so hard. You know, I, I get anxious too. It's, it's t- you know, and you, you comfort them. So in our practice, what we try to do in that moment is comfort ourselves. So the Buddha says in the Sutta on loving kindness, which is the kind of theme of my teaching right now and the theme of this book, 
Even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings. Even as a mother protects her child, it doesn't even say loves her child. It says she protects her child, she takes care of her child. That's what the Buddha is encouraging us to do in our practice, protect ourselves, take care of ourselves. So when we realize we are creating suffering in our own minds, to say, I'm so bad at this meditation, is adding more suffering to the, what's already unpleasant. So we tr we, this is what the first thing, and for me it's like the thing of practicing, is to be able to let go of that. Because in a way, all the rest of the stuff in meditation takes care of itself. Once you stop beating yourself up, and stop trying to make something happen, the mind goes to a place that's very natural. It wants to be peaceful. It's just we're, we're interfering, <laughs> getting in the way of our own mind, right? We're just, like when you go to sleep, do you like decide, okay, get to sleep. Come on, sleep now. What the heck's wrong with me? I'm not sleeping. Why am I? No, your body knows how to go to sleep. You just allow it to. You create the circumstances, the conditions. You close your eyes, you turn out the lights, you lie on a soft place, your body falls asleep. If you, with meditation, you watch your mind, you let go of the distractions, you come back to the breath, your mind knows where to go. It finds its way. So it's really, I guess, I'm also describing faith. We actually have to trust in the practice, which is hard. Because again, our idea of how the world works is it's a tough world out there. You can't count on anybody. You got to take care of yourself, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, meditate, meditate, you know, get it together. You know, that's again, this kind of idea that somehow we're going to make it happen. I think of it also as like, oh, like if you had to actually control the digestion in your body, right? Like your body digests food. You just put the, you chew it. It's good if you chew it. Chew and good, select good food that's not bad for your stomach, and then chew it and swallow it. And your body takes care of the rest. So coming back to your breath, letting go of your thoughts is the selecting the food and chewing it. Setting an intention, setting up the conditions, and then allowing the practice to unfold from there. So thank you. Thank you for that beautiful question. Yeah, it's an elevator person. You should meditate more. <laughs> but I, I don't usually say should, so I, I'll take that back. I would encourage you to meditate more. Mainly because the, that it's, there's a certain kind of self-consciousness that comes all of a sudden. It's you know, like digesting. You know, if you all of a sudden, like, am I digesting okay? Um, when you wear black, like little specks really stand out, so just get rid of that. Not that I'm a perfectionist. Um, so breathing is a thing that your body does, right? You know you're breathing all the time even though you're not paying attention, and all of a sudden you're paying attention, and all of a sudden you're like, wait, am I breathing right? Why am I, you know, and, you're, and it's a self-consciousness, I think, primarily that comes up for people. Sometimes people will talk about, well, I feel like I'm not breathing deeply enough, or I find that I start taking really deep breaths, or they're kind of, and, and my sense is that that's just a, um, a thing that goes away if you just practice more, because it's, it's, it's just a self-consciousness that you, you, you can't actually hold on to that kind of self-consciousness. 
because you start thinking. And once you start thinking, you stop, stop thinking about your breath. So, you know, you'll space out and you'll notice when you, come, when you stop spacing out, you realize, oh, I'm, I'm breathing okay now. And then you'll start tensing again because now you're thinking about your breath. So the other thing is to, I mean, there, there might be a variety of things that, that uh, the teachers might suggest on that. One thing is you, you said, I'm thinking about my breath. And that's not the instruction. Paying attention to your breath is putting attention on the physical experience of breathing, what it feels like, the sense experience. So if I touch my hand, I feel, right now I feel warmth. So it's the feeling. So the feeling is very subtle. So you're not... I don't know if you meant that when you said thinking about your breath, but you said it. So just to encourage you that that it's not like you're like, okay, I'm breathing in. Okay, I'm breathing out. And, and that's maybe why, because um, a lot of times people use a phrase like breathing in, breathing out. And are you doing that? Okay, no, that's okay. It's a, it's a perfectly, it's a, it's a useful practice, but maybe for you, that's not a good thing to do right now. If it's turning it into more of a self-conscious thing, just like feel it, feel it as a sensation. So it's, it's very sensual, you know, and it's very intimate actually feeling your breath. And that's one of the parts of it that, that connects for me with love as well. Cause when you're breathing, you know, you're, you're keeping your body alive. It's an act of caring towards your body. Um, and, and sometimes when you really, when you, when it gets very uh, quiet, it can feel like this kind of precious activity. Uh, but just you know, just I would say, just pay more attention just to the felt experience, and and recognize that it it's just a kind of passing thing. Again, it's kind of like trust. Okay, if I keep doing this, that'll go away. Uh, yeah, I don't have a better instruction than that, though. I hope that'll help. Yeah, thanks. Well, those are two good questions. So let's take let's take a 10-minute break and uh, come back and we'll talk more about living kindness. And uh, as I said, the books are back there on the table. I, I'm fortunate that I can sell them very inexpensively for $10. So uh, if you're interested, it'd be great if I didn't have to take them back to California. Wow, you're so well behaved. I love the way Buddhists react to bells. Oh, it's a bell. Go. Be quiet. It doesn't work with other people. I've tried it, you know. Because at like a company party one time, I was like, I'll just ring a bell and everybody will be quiet. Ding! They just kept talking. I was like, oh, I see how it is. So I know maybe there's a slim possibility. But if there's a possibility that you're going to be in Northern California in June, you can come to the Clean and Sober Music Fest, at which I will be performing my famous Laughing Buddha music, um, um, among other things. There'll be there are a lot of performers, not just me, but and I'll also be speaking and leading some stuff up there. But uh, anyway, it's in uh, Mendocino County, June 9th and 10th. It's like all. It's it's all over my Facebook feed, so I assume it's over everybody's Facebook feed, right? That's how that works. That's right. Everybody gets the same thing on Facebook, right? Oh no, I forgot. Okay, don't even let me start on that. I I tend to digress. In fact, that's basically how I teach. It's all digression but I have notes. This is like very professional. So, uh, first of all, if did I thank New York Insight? I didn't. Thank you, Peace. Thank you, volunteers. Uh, thank you, Sandra, for all your work. And uh, I'm just really grateful that I can just write an email and say, yeah, come and teach. So, uh, 
I love coming here. And I mean, the baseball season started yesterday, and Giancarlo Stanton hit two home runs opening day. Okay, I know Buddhists, they're not baseball fans. <laughs> Some of us are. Um, so, uh, you know, I'm, I'm teaching a lot around the topics of this book, Living Kindness. And um, it's interesting because, like, people will say to me, so, are you on a book tour? And I'm like, no, it's, it's not a book. It's not like... Uh, it's actually like this... It's been this marvelous um, just practice and learning for me. I, it took me a couple of years to write that book, and um, I had some great help. Uh, it's, uh, as, uh, as um, the bio says, it, it's kind of... Su- it, draws from some of the early teachings, the suttas, um, but very much through my own lens and my own reflections. Uh, so so one, of the, one of the reasons I wrote the book is because the suttas, which are the earliest Buddhist teachings from what's called the Pali Canon, I know some of you are familiar with this, some of you not, um, but the suttas are the discourses that the Buddha gave uh, at least as far as we know, what, what has been handed down in the Buddhist tradition. And when I first tried to read them, I just found them in, impenetrable. And when I first had it, one of my teachers used to talk about them, and they just sounded so dry, and I just couldn't get excited, and I just immediately wanted to go back and read Jack Hornfield. You know, so read something I could understand, Joseph Goldstein, you know, something more westernized. But over the years, as I learned to read them, and I got guidance on how to read them, I got more and more into them to a point where now I'm just in love with these teachings. And I wanted to find a way uh, to make them, help other people fall in love with them, basically, you know, to make them accessible. and so, uh, so the book just explores a few different suttas, not a lot of them. And, and, and the truth is, you really don't have to read a lot of suttas. Does it need to be higher? Or is it falling down? Or am I just getting taller? Yeah. I was just reading about how Donald Trump got, grew an inch. But anyway, um, it's a long story. Um, It turns out, if you really, if you study just a few suttas carefully, you get a lot of what the Buddha taught. And once you learn how to read a couple of them, you can read a lot more. They, they all become more, more accessible. There's sort of technical things to learn, and it's almost like code or different language. So that was one of my motivations in writing this book. But the title kind of tells you my kind of central motivation, living kindness. You know, if you're familiar at all with Buddhist teachings, you know that loving kindness is one of the main things that that gets taught in the Dharma world. And does this like keep slipping down? Or just I I sense that it's getting further from me. Which I can, yeah. Yeah, it seems like it's okay. I you know because there might be loud. But loving kindness is often taught, first of all, just as a meditation, which is great. It's a wonderful, lovely meditation. But it's not really the point. <laughs> um, the point is to live that practice. And some of the suttas, these suttas that I'm kind of exploring in this book, kind of bring out and elucidate what the Buddha was talking about, about loving kindness, that I think is much more broad and um, practical, actually, uh, than just the idea of, oh, meditate and love everybody. You know, which... You know, like everything in our culture, Buddhism gets marketed. 
Shocking, shocking, I know. And when you're marketing loving kindness, oftentimes the, the pitch is come and open your heart and feel connected with everybody and feel loving. And, and that's kind of the end of the pitch. And I'm like, well, that sounds good. You know, yeah, I'll, I'll pay for that. I'll go on that retreat. That's great. But that's not a real thing. I mean, you can have that moment, you can have that experience, but that's not something. You're not going to get like fixed so that they're just, okay, from now on, I just walk down 27th Street and I just love everybody, you know. You know, that'll last about five minutes. And then, like, somebody will push you out of the way. Or, like, it'll start raining and you won't be able to get a cab. Or, like, the subways will be broken down. And you'll be like, what the hell's going on? Oh, wait. I thought I was practicing love and kindness. What am I supposed to do now? <laughs> so, so I want, what I'm going to talk about tonight actually isn't in the book. Uh, but it's kind of, I, I guess, implied in there. Um, which is these different dimensions of loving kindness. Uh, so the, the first dimension is kind of the one I'm talking about now, which is the, the feeling of loving kindness. And that's what I think we all want. And that's kind of the pitch. You want to feel loving kindness. And it feels good. And if you practice meditation or you do some any kind of spiritual practice that kind of makes your heart open. You know, it's very rich and powerful and important and meaningful. But there's a problem with feelings. You might have heard about this in the Buddhist centers. They're impermanent. You can't hold on to them. So, yeah, it's great. You got the feeling. But if you can't hold on to it, that's not enough. You need more. You need more if you're going to live this practice. So, one of the, if we're talking about, you know, there's a meditation practice, well, stepping into a more practical realm, one of the ways we practice loving kindness is, is following the precepts. And people don't often talk about the precepts as a form of loving kindness. But in fact, Venerable Analio, who's one of the great contemporary Buddhist scholars, says that following the precepts, which are to not kill, not to steal, not to harm people sexually, not to harm people verbally, and to not use intoxicants, to just follow those fairly simple guidelines, that's how we practice the Dharma off the cushion. He says that's how we practice compassion in the world is by following the precepts. Well, it doesn't sound, you know, at first blush, it's like, well, how does not killing, how is that not killing people? How is that like practicing compassion? Well, you can think about the opposite for one. It's like, you know, the idea is non-harming is an act of compassion. If everybody in the, you know, if we think about it in the larger scale, if everybody in the world went around following the precepts, what a different world this would be. I mean, most of us aren't going around killing, stealing, you know, doing the rest of those things. But there's enough people that are. And of course, nations do it a lot, which I don't even think I can go there. But here we're just getting back to behavior. So living kindness, practicing loving kindness as a lifestyle, pretty obviously has to do with behavior. And just, just starting with this simple, fairly simple practice, it's actually difficult to follow the precepts, but just striving to do that is a great act of loving kindness. And, and the, one of the reasons that I bring that up is because, again, just we have these ideas of what spirituality should look like, and oftentimes it's this sort of idealized version of ourselves, what we think we should be, or it's sort of exotic states or bliss. But to realize that a foundational 
practice is just to live a moral life, to live with integrity, that that in itself is already, then we, we already get a good grade if we're grading ourselves, if we're going to go into that, you know, we're all okay. I'm already practicing. I don't have to judge myself too much. So this is in the Buddha's model for spiritual development. This is the first stage of spiritual development called sila. It's usually translated as morality, but like a lot of the words that we translate from Pali, it's not a full translation. Uh, It has to do with living ethically, living with integrity, living in harmony with our own values. So this is the foundation of loving kindness, not meditating, actually. And if you read the, the, um, the sutta on loving kindness, called the metta sutta, and I should talk about that word metta, but let me just say this first. The first a quarter, at least, of the sutta, first, at least, a quarter to a third of the sutta is just about behavior and attitude. It says nothing about love or compassion or caring. It says this is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who's, uh, those who practice the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud and demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. You know, live wisely, live kindly, but live without greed. (laughs) And then there's one little line where the Buddha says how you should Practice loving kindness, wishing in gladness and in safety, may all beings be at ease. Three things, gladness, which we usually say, may you be happy, safety, may you be safe, and at ease, may you be peaceful. So those those are the roots of the three traditional, uh, three of the traditional phrases of loving kindness. And then after that introduction of that, he just describes all the different kinds of people, which is sort of odd. Like, you know, the great or the muddy, the medium, short or small. Sounds like we're choosing t-shirt sizes. Those who have been born, those to be born, those seen and those unseen. And then, okay, we've done that. Now he shifts into just talking about non-ill will. And he just talks about not hating people, not resenting people, not harming people. So it turns out that a lot of the time, instead of talking about love, the Buddha talks about non-ill will and non-harming. It's very interesting to me that he does this. And my take on that is that, you know, the Buddha's core teaching is that grasping or trying to hold on to anything causes suffering. And so, I have to think that at times he thought, it's better for me not to suggest people something for people to do, because that might encourage more grasping, but rather suggest something for them to not do, which encourages them to let go. And in fact, if we can let go of ill will, it turns out we get along pretty well with people, you know, and there's, that's the foundation for loving kindness in terms of our inner life. You know, the, I think most of us have a lot more problem with anger and ill will than we do with love. You know, it's easy to love the people you love. It's difficult to not hate the people you hate, if that makes any sense at all. But So there's the feeling of loving kindness, there's the behavior the living part of it. Which extends out into generosity, you know, it extends out of, into being of service, all those kind of ways of, of living that 
are skillful and wise. When we practice meditation, and particularly when we practice loving-kindness meditation, another thing that comes up besides a pleasant feeling, a, a feeling of loving, is insight. So the first insight of loving kindness is that I want to be loved and I'm no different from anyone else. You know, the, on my first retreat, at the end of the retreat, we'd just been doing mindfulness or Vipassana meditation for <laughs> five days. It was a Thanksgiving retreat out in the desert in uh, Southern California. And at the end of the retreat, the teacher had us turn and face someone who we were sitting close to and both of you were to close your eyes and then one person was to open their eyes and look at the other person's face for a couple of minutes which was really, really intense and powerful. And I felt like I was looking at a lifetime or a life or the... In a way, a lot of the, I felt like I was seeing a lot of the pain of a life on this person's face. It's just a young woman who I didn't know. And then the other person, you know, I closed my eyes and she looked at me. And then we were to open our eyes and just look at each other. Very, very powerful. And, And it was this tremendous compassion practice. And I was 30 years old, and for the week after that, I cried every day. And I hadn't cried since I don't know when. And I was probably either early in my teenage years or before I was a teenager, that I, the last time I had cried. Um, which I don't think is that unusual. Um, but I know that I discovered that my heart had been closed all those years. And that what I opened opened to was this universal suffering, was how universal suffering is. And as I was hearing the teachings about dukkha suffering, and then looking at this person and just sensing, oh, she's like me, you know. She's suffered, she's struggled. I just felt this connection for the first time. For the first time in a long time. I think maybe as a child I felt it, but I didn't realize I felt it. But this insight that we have then, that people often have, not necessarily through such an intense uh, interaction, but very often through meditating on loving kindness, this insight reveals uh, our interconnection. It really, it, it doesn't, it's not something we it's not so much a thought, it's something we, we feel. We feel the walls come down. And this happens without practicing actually formal metta practice. It happens just by meditating and being quiet and being still. The, the walls come down and this vulnerability opens up. And, and somehow, because as we practice in this way and as the, the mind quiets, uh, and, and I'm really talking about a retreat experience, this doesn't I don't know how often this happens for people, um, you know, arising for the first time out of a daily practice, though I'm sure it could. But for me, it happened in retreat, and I think for many people it happens on retreats. As the mind quiets down, what happens is that the ego, the sense of self, the, the thinking about yourself quiets down, so that when you feel your heart opening, you realize that it's not personal. Because you don't, things don't seem so personal, and you realize this is universal. What I'm experiencing is universal. It's not unique to me. This isn't about me or my story. It's not about my history or my plans. It's just I'm experiencing the human condition of longing, of longing for love, and of suffering, and of longing to be free from suffering. And in that, very spontaneously, even as a mother protects with her life, her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart, you know, our heart opens up 
and we feel that sense of love for all beings. And this experience, again, the feeling is one thing, but the insight is this realization that we are connected with everyone and that everyone longs for happiness, that everyone suffers and that everyone wants to be free from suffering. That insight we can take with us. Whereas a feeling requires certain causes and conditions to arise and to maintain, an insight only requires remembering, remembering its, its truth, a truth that we know. All someone has to say is, oh, remember interconnection. And you go, all right, we're all interconnected. Now, here's where loving kindness connects to Mindfulness. The root word for mindfulness in the Pali language is sati. Sati means remembering. We translate it as mindfulness, but its root meaning is memory. It's about remembering. Remembering our connection. Remembering love. Remembering to be present. Remembering our insights. That's the thing that allows us to maintain this practice and to, to come back to ourselves is remembering. It's, it's not that hard to be mindful. I'd say it's a little hard to be loving, but it, it's, it's, these capacities are very natural for us. What's hard is to remember to do them. And this is why we practice on a regular basis every day, if possible. That because whatever we do regularly, we tend to think about it. We tend to remember it. You know, when you, you know, after you've gotten used to brushing your teeth every day, you don't have to really remind yourself to do it because it's just in your head. It's bedtime. It's time to brush my teeth, right? When I get up in the morning, it's oh, it's time to meditate, right? Because <laughs> like that's what I do in the morning. So I don't like have to go. Hmm, should I meditate today? I don't know. Is it worth it? I don't know. Maybe I should call my teacher and ask him, you know. Reminds me of Wes Nisker's song, uh, Buddha Blues. Woke up this morning, trouble in my mind. I tried some meditation, but no peace could I find. I called up my guru, and he told me, son, you just got to, re- well, that's not right, but any- you just got to remember the first noble truth. You were born to suffer. You were born to pay your dues. And the path goes on forever if you've got the Buddha blues. So, there's a feeling, there's a behavior, there's an insight. This insight brings us to another, uh, this is an element of practice that, uh, that is it's directly related to insight, and maybe it's the same thing, but I'm kind of pulling it out as something separate, which is what I call the attitude of loving-kindness. The attitude of loving-kindness is based on the insight. When we realize that everything is interconnected, then and we have this insight, then we start to look at our experiences through that lens. We try to take that attitude. So we're walking in the street. Somebody bumps into us. I usually use cars, but I know in New York you don't have a car so if you're, unless you're crazy or an Uber driver. But, you know, if somebody bumps into you and you know, the attitude of loving kindness is, oh, it's forgiveness, it's understanding, you know, the attitude of a normal human being is irritation, get out of my way, you know, fear, or you know, whatever. But the attitude of loving kindness is, oh, that person's spaced out, and it's painful to be spaced out. I hope they're okay. You know, that kind of like just taking this attitude that you're looking at the world through this insight, through this, and trying to carry that with you. So, for me, for this practice, for this teaching, 
on loving kindness to be meaningful. It needs to be something I can live. It needs to be something I can utilize. It, it has to have meaning for me beyond a pleasant state, um, a pleasant experience, beyond sort of even a, a self-image of being like a, I'm a loving person. You know, a nice person. I, we get that confused too, being nice with being loving. I, I actually, I'll, I'll come back to, I often actually start with this, but it's, it's not a bad place to, to end, I think. We'll see. The word that's translated as loving kindness, metta, in the Pali language, M-E-T-T-A. It's a very simple word. Loving kindness is not a simple word. It's two words. We, you know, because in our language, love can mean a lot of different things. Sometimes they don't have anything to do with affection, you know. Uh, so we have to make, to make it clear what we're talking about. We're talking about the kind type of love. The loving, you know, loving kindness. I mean, to add, to have to add kindness to love kind of says a lot about what our culture or what our language, you know, me, you know, does with the word love. But what's clear is that there is no English translation for the word meta. In fact, Analio says something like friendliness or benevolence is a better translation. I don't find those words, somehow those don't excite me very much. Uh, but this is true of many words in the Pali language. Uh, dukkha, which we translate as suffering, is much more complicated than that. Um, Vedana, we translate as feeling. I can't even, it, that's a whole like Dharma talk to try to get through what that means. So, we're faced with the, the fact that there is no English word for metta. So the only way we can really understand it is experientially, which is actually true of the Dharma, of what the Buddha taught. It's true of mindfulness. You know, you read so many definitions of mindfulness, but you have to experience it. I mean... <laughs> The, the reason I know that <laughs> is because I've been teaching mindfulness for over 20 years and virtually nobody that I've ever taught has learned it from anything I've said. <laughs> yeah. And I know that because when they ask me a question, I realize they don't understand. And it's because they're trying to figure, understand it with their mind. So the only way we can understand mindfulness is through experience. The same is true. So sati, that we translate, and mindfulness is another terrible translation of the word mindfulness. Or, or mindfulness, what, what did I say? Anyway, just flip me upside down, you'll understand it. I'm left-handed. I, I explain a lot of my problems that way. Mindfulness is a terrible translation of sati. Loving kindness, I don't, it's not a terrible translation of metta, but you know, we have to experience it for ourselves. What I wanted to get to is that not only do we not have a good translation of metta, we have a really hard time understanding what love is in, when the Buddha says, or when the meditation teacher says, practice loving kindness towards yourself. Because immediately what people do is they go, well, what have I done that makes me worthy of love? And that is the wrong question. That is not what loving kindness, what loving yourself is about. It's not about, did I qualify for it? Did I, is my grade point average high enough? My, my Buddhist grade point average, you know? You 
you qualify for loving, loving yourself if you are alive and breathing, you know. The, when the Buddha says, even as a mother protects with her life, her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings, he doesn't say, note that he doesn't say, even as a mother hugs and squeezes and loves her child, the Buddha recognizes that parents get quite angry and frustrated with their children at times. At times their children are misbehaved. But we don't stop protecting them. And I would put it in a more simple term. We don't stop caring for them. So I see loving ourselves as caring for ourselves, taking care of ourselves on the physical level, on the spiritual level, on the mental level. You're here tonight. Coming here tonight is an act of love for yourself. Can you think of it that way? Can you see that your impulse to come and meditate, maybe get some teachings, maybe have some community, was something you were doing to take care of yourself, right? Because you know, like, oh, if I go to, you know, if I go to Friday night at New York Insight, I'll kind of feel better. I kind of, it's been a rough week, or I'm just feeling this way. I'll have some meditating, it'll, it'll feel good. You know, I can let go of some of this stuff. I'll hear some, it'll be good. You were taking care of yourself. You were loving yourself by coming here. You don't, you didn't have to like, you know, earn that, you know. It makes it much simpler. You can be pissed off with yourself all you want. You can think that you're a jerk. You can have your inner critic, which is like a term that I don't care for, but you know, all of that. And you can love yourself at the same time. So it's fine. You can, you know, be all, yeah, I'm so screwed up. I'm so dumb. I knocked that glass over. I messed up, blah, blah, blah. Oh, and, you know, oh, all my relationships, and, oh, my family, you know, my job. I think I'll have some lunch because <laughs> I'm hungry. Oh, I'm loving myself again. Now, if you starve yourself, which people do, or if you do things to harm yourself, that, I think, is a, an act of self-hatred. It's not thinking I'm a great person, or I'm thinking, thinking I'm a bad person that's an act of self-hatred. It's, it's being unkind to yourself, you know, uh, which, is, which is hard. And as a recovering addict, I mean, you know, and I know some of you are in recovery, you know, yeah, that, that was not loving myself, you know, pouring and injecting, infusing intoxicants into my body, that wasn't love. I wasn't caring for myself. Once again, I find that idea freeing because it frees me from the idea that, oh, you know, like I've even had Dharma teachers say, oh, just think about the last time you did something nice for someone. And I'm like, uh, uh, uh. I don't know, does like opening the door for an old lady count, you know? It's like, and then all of a sudden, again, you're in this kind of qualifying for it. Did I earn it? It's not about that, you know? There's nothing, the Buddha never says you have to earn love. You know? In the sutta that kind of addresses this, there's these two characters that I, you run into a bunch in the suttas. They were historical characters, as far as we know. King Pasanadi and Queen Malika. Queen Malika was a great devotee of the Buddha, and King Pasanadi went along with her because he loved her. <laughs> so King Pasanadi says to Queen Malika, Queen Malika, is there anyone that you hold more dear than yourself? Now, when I read this, I think... The king is asking you if there's anyone that you hold more dear than yourself. Wink, wink, you know. But Queen Malika, who's very clear, says, no. There's no one that I hold more dear than myself. Now, King Pasnadi, being a guy, 
And she then says, what about you? And he says, no, there's no one that I hold more dear than myself. Now, I'm adding all this irony to it or whatever that's not in the sutta. So try to put that aside because it's, it's very simple. They just say this to each other. And it's, it's kind of odd. It's just, it's just in this short sutta. And, and then they go to the Buddha. And they tell him how they had this exchange. And the Buddha says, that is excellent. I really like that you said that. You said that. And then he adds, he says, and anyone who loves themselves will never harm another. So he takes the teaching on loving yourself into an act, into an expression of compassion. It's, it's kind of the long way around to get to the golden rule. You know, do unto others as you would do unto yourself. Anyone who loves themselves will not harm another. But Again, it's very simple. It's not about qualifying. It just says everyone holds themselves dear. Well, you know, that's, that ex- for him to say that in our culture, we'd go, they do? Really? Not us, you know, supposedly. But again, that's what I, I don't think he's talking about. Everyone likes themselves or everyone thinks, thinks they're really great and deserve to be rich and famous or whatever you think, you know, you should deserve. He's just saying everyone cares for themselves. And because he's saying no one would harm another, right? So he's saying everyone, no, no one who loves themselves harms themselves or harms anyone else. So it's about caring. Again, protecting and caring. These are the basics. This, I think, is much more the meaning of metta than some lofty idea of, of um, you know, there, there is the, lo- I, I don't mean to discount lofty ideas. The lofty ideas are beautiful, but I think we can get stuck with that out there and we're here. How do I get there? You can't get there from here, right? Just making it more simple and letting letting this be about caring, caring for ourselves, caring for others. We don't have to, you know, have the be the greatest, most generous, most loving, most you know, giving person in the world. We just take care, you know, take care, keep it simple. So, So there's a few minutes left. If there are any thoughts or reflections, comments, questions, be happy to address. Yeah. I meditated, I, I did 
activity and I'm just packed up and I'm like, smile at my anger. I did that every day for 15 minutes. And now I'm going to see him on Sunday. And I am like, on one hand, I, I want to not talk to him. Mm-hmm. Then I thought, okay, well, that's loving kindness is like protecting ourselves from harmful people but not shutting them out of our hearts. So mm-hmm. I shouldn't do that. Not say anything. Then I'm like, well, he put it out on Facebook. What if, what if it, Kid tweets it whose parents are like an interfaith couple and the kids or like what if what about the LGBT youth that commit suicide because people say those things like isn't it my duty to say hey what you're saying has ramifications in the world you can harm a young person by like telling them they're sin they can take their lives because of them like no I shouldn't say anything unless it's brought up because it's not my place anyway. Don't want to take too much time, but you like, Yeah, I'm not sure I have time to answer that question. Yeah. Thank you for listening. Well, I would say start with non-ill will, practicing, trying to practice non-ill will and non-harming. Um, you know, when it comes to directly interacting with people, like trying to challenge them on their beliefs or change their beliefs, I would suggest being very, very careful because uh, people's beliefs rarely change. You know, it's very hard to change people's beliefs. And the one of the best suggestions I've heard about dealing with family that are, is difficult for a Buddhist is be a Buddha, not a Buddhist. You know, so just try to practice what you know in terms of caring and being kind, and you know, unless you're living with them, if you're just seeing them now and then, I would just try to seek harmony. Uh, You know, you can't protect all the LGBT youth in the world, and you can't police all the hatred on Facebook. You know, that's not, your job, you know, you can only show up and try to be caring and thoughtful and accepting. And, you know, if someone says something to your face or, you know, that, that you find really offensive, you know, if there's a skillful way to respond to that, great, you know. But um, I just... There's too many uh, people <laughs> who disagree with us and who are doing unskillful things in the world to to change them all. I, I'd I'd rather kind of uh, cultivate the other communities. You know, um, uh, I went to the march uh, in San Francisco last weekend, and that was really really inspiring. You know, and I saw a statistic yesterday or today on uh, that was like showing that, oh, most of the people who marched were progressives. I was like, so what's your point? You know, <laughs> yeah. What did you think? Did you think like all of a sudden all these peop- gun owners were going to be like, I'm throwing out my gun and joining the teens? You know, and that's not the world we're in. You know, so I, I just would, you know, try to maintain harmony and uh, more than that, I don't, you know, I don't have that much to say, you know. Yeah, it's not easy. I mean, I have, you know, a Republican brother, so, you know, and we have a nice time. We've learned, you know, we hang out. I have a, I have a hardcore right-wing father-in-law. We have a very nice time. We've learned that we just don't, go, I don't go there and try to change him. You know, I've learned, learned that. That doesn't work. And he doesn't try to change me. We talk about history and sports and my daughter, you know, and then that's good, you know. Uh, We just don't kind of get involved in the things that we conflict over. I don't know, maybe other people are going to be with family over this weekend. I I hadn't realized when I scheduled it that this was sort of this double whammy weekend for two of the Judeo-Christian, well, both the Judeo-Christian religions, two of the the religions of the book, two of the three. So, uh, okay.
I don't want to keep people late, so let's just, uh, I'll, I'll be here if you want to come and talk. Yeah. Um, let's just, uh, well, I'll do a close. Do you, is there anything you need to say before we close? Peace needs the microphone. I just love what that sounds like. Peace. I know. Needs the microphone, I know. <laughs> Absolutely. Can we also say that if they can't make it for the whole day, they can come for part of the day? I, that's fine with me. I, I want people to feel welcome to come if, and not, not, you know, just exclude them because they have to come later, leave early. That's fine. Not preferable, just right. acceptable. Let me just do the dedication of merit before we go. And just to appreciate with gratitude that there is this place and these teachings that we receive this place of refuge. And to know that this is a gift that we can share with others, whether directly or just through our way of being. So we take this practice and this, these teachings out into the world and further as the Buddha says, we radiate, we radiate kindness. So if there's some way in which our consciousness itself actually touches other beings, then we share the merit, we offer the benefits of our practice to the awakening of all beings. May all beings be free from suffering. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.